I guess we left y'all on a bit of a cliffhanger last week. Sorry about that. That's right. So we're not going to waste any time before we dive right back into this story. If you haven't already, make sure you go back and listen to part one. Uh, duh. Yep. Or this episode will be wasted on you and uh, we will know it. And we will block you from accessing all Camping is Cancelled content. Mm, yes. You have been warned. We are powerful and all-knowing. <laughs> Now that we've got that squared away, let's get into part two and the conclusion of a case that's local to us in Mascouda, Illinois, and has become particularly close to our hearts. The 1969 prom night murders of Mike Morrison and Debbie Means. And like we said in part one, but we want to make sure we talk about it again. There is no way we would be able to bring you this story in such detail without the fantastic book Bad Moon Rising, The Prom Night Murders Memoir, written by Mike's own brother Ed Morrison and Ed's wife Mindy, and the countless hours they both put into researching and compiling the facts of this case. So after you finish listening to this two-parter, definitely go and buy this book if you love a good true crime nonfiction read. All right, here we go. Lights out, campers. When we last left you, the small town of Mascuda was still reeling from the shock of two of its best young people never coming home from the prom on Saturday night. And after the frantic search, their bodies found brutally murdered two days later during an airplane search on Monday afternoon at around 1.30 p.m., just a couple of miles from where they had been hanging out with their friends after prom. Mike had been shot three times in the back of the head and Debbie had been sexually assaulted, beaten, and strangled. With no immediate suspects, no weapon found at the scene, and a murder and a rapist on the loose, law enforcement was under immense pressure from the beginning to get to the bottom of the shocking crime. Two days after Mike and Debbie's bodies were found, on Wednesday, May 7, 1969, a bizarre jumble of puzzle pieces would pop up literally all in the same day to ramp the intensity of the investigation. First thing in the morning, the office of Scott Mobile Homes received a phone call. It was a message for the owner, Perry Wilson, from one of his employees, a man who was known to his co-workers as Bill Nickerson. Bill informed the office manager over the phone, quote, Tell Perry I won't be in today and possibly tomorrow. My sister was killed in a car accident. He also said that he was in Rolla, Missouri on his way to Springfield and that he'd only just found out about the accident from his brother-in-law. He also asked that Perry take care of his tools and said he'd be in touch. Immediately, Perry's hackles went up. This Bill Nickerson was also the one and the same who had showed up at work on Monday morning just the day before yesterday with a brutally split lip, bloody and bruised knuckles, and deep scratches on his face that he'd told the park and shop checkout clerk came from a blown water heater, and his co-worker, he told, came from falling in a briar patch. 
due to Mike and Debbie's murder being at the forefront of everyone's mind, Perry immediately recalled that law enforcement had been asking everyone in town to pay especially close attention and report any suspicious activity they witnessed, especially if someone abruptly took off and left town. Bill Nickerson. That sounds like a fake... Hmm. It just sounds fake. It's a weird one. <laughs> like, out Nickerson. of all the names you could pick. Nickerson. Nickerson. Later that same morning, Bob Shea sat at St. Louis Police Headquarters, sharing to a room full of horrified officers that around two weeks prior, he and his date had been forced at gunpoint out of his car, ordered to strip, and sexually assaulted. Absolutely terrified, they had done everything he'd said without protest. Eventually, their attacker had left them alive on the side of the road, but not before he threatened to come back and kill them if they ever went to the police. When Bob had seen the news of Mike and Debbie's murder and assault in the newspaper, he immediately felt their and his and his date's encounter could have been with the same man. Oh, God. And like we said in part one, it was also the same morning that just across the river, Debbie's mother walked to their mailbox to find an unsealed letter addressed, quote, to the murdered girl's mother, unquote containing a sloppily written, handwritten letter and various identification cards that belonged to Mike Morrison, including his driver's license and a photo of Mike's six... Aww, oh, stop it. God. Mike's six-year-old brother, Joey. In the very same ticket, Mike had been issued on prime night for doing donuts in the high school parking lot. So there was no question the letter had come from someone who'd had access to his wallet on the night of his death. The FBI was notified immediately and as if all of this wasn't crazy enough, still on that same morning, the St. Clair County Sheriff's Office received an anonymous phone call from a man who said, quote, I am the one who killed them, and I will do it again. I was bit around the mouth area, unquote. That is so bizarre to me that, as far as we know, that's all that he said, because that's all that was on the transcript. Mm -hmm. And then he just abruptly hung up. And... I think that it's like a weird way of him saying, I killed them because uh, I was bit. Mm -hmm. But when you hear that, he has to know that when you put some sort of identifying like feature mm -hmm. into something like that, that's like a facial feature that sets you apart from other people. They're going to be looking <laughs> for you. Babe. And I know we're going to read it later, but his note that he writes, oh, yeah. just his spelling goes to show <laughs> this man is not a smart one. Oh, I refer to him later as fake dipshit Bill. Okay. Um, okay. We, I like we that. call him that for a while. But yeah. I. It's just a I maybe, weird yeah. call regardless whether you want to be caught, whether you're yeah. like, you know, catfishing the mm -hmm. police almost. Like, yeah. I, I don't know the, I can't or like, the correct term. Like... <laughs> tauntalizing yeah, is taunting. a fake word i use like <laughs> taunting and tantalizing well, yeah yeah it's like whether you're doing it on purpose what it, mm -hmm. whatever reason he's already a few brain cells short yeah <laughs> so yes you're absolutely right it's just so weird that i'm like i want to understand what his thought I, process was when he was like 
these are the words that are going to come out of my mouth to police. But I think you're right. There probably wasn't much of a thought process and it was more of an impulse. Right. Yeah, I guess, he, you know, you're calling. You don't really have the option of, yeah. of hanging up and re-recording. And you know he was also saying it in the most Ew. redneck accent known to me. Like, He's like, I was bit around the mouth area. <laughs> <laughs> With these new developments over the course of a single morning, the urgency of the investigation skyrocketed. Law enforcement now had the handwritten letter the anonymous phone call claiming to be from the killer with a bitten lip, and the account of the attack from victim Bob Shea. Dried blood had also been collected from beneath Debbie's fingernails, which was basically useless from a DNA standpoint in 1969 beyond being able to confirm that the blood was human, mm -hmm. which they did. But this still definitely strongly implied that there was a struggle and there was a single well-defined boot print, men's size eight, photographed near the bodies at the scene and cast in plaster. The FBI was also given the white adhesive tape that had been used to secure Debbie's underwear that was shoved into her throat, the underwear itself, the rope used to bind her, and the three bullets extracted from Mike's head and blood specimens from both Mike and Debbie. Suspecting that whoever attacked Mike and Debbie was specifically out looking for a young couple to target in a rural area and was likely to do it again, state troopers Dave Young and Charlie Grawl dressed up as a young couple and staked out in a civilian car along rural country roads, with 25-year-old Dave wearing a blonde wig and a dress and for three nights straight after Mike and Debbie's bodies were found, they staked out in several spots around the area where they were abducted, hoping to lure the killer, but to no avail. I just have to say that we love Dave. Dave did not make a very convincing high school girl. No. He made a beautiful drag queen. Mm -hmm. I would say, like, he was... An iconic... I would enjoy him at a brunch. Yes, he was an iconic Mad Men Betty drag. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> With like the rock hard blonde hair. Oh, the the triangle tits. Yes, the triangle tits, the like kitten heeled shoe, but uh, yeah. Not convinced. You're right. Yeah, not a convincing the high, high school girl. And we will include the fantastic picture of him <laughs> on the Instagram post. But yes, Ugh. that's also pretty awesome that they immediately were just like... Well, they just immediately jumped in and were trying to... Like, I know you always... Like, mm -hmm. but, but like to dress up yeah, and like stake yourself out and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is like... It just feels like a movie. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe it's that because it's a small town that yeah. we're true, like right by us. We're mm -hmm. used to it's close to home. Yeah, but it's it's weird. <laughs> it is weird, and I wish they had caught him by doing that because that, that would have been, been fantastic. But no. By the end of the week, Dave and Charlie had conducted a total of two hundred interviews, determined that this bitch <laughs> was not going <laughs> to get away with murder. Nope. On the day of Mike and Debbie's joint funeral. 
undercover armed security was peppered throughout the church and streets and stood alongside Mike and Debbie's family, dressed as civilians, watching intently for a man in the crowd who looked like he might have been bitten on the face. Oh my god. Wow, I can't even imagine. And none of this was known to anyone but and that's, police. That's good. Yeah, so that's not what the family and friends seem to no, be thinking about. No, but it's just interesting because as we have all of this in retrospect, mm-hmm. now it's all out there, but just trying to put yourself in that place at that time. Man, I can't even imagine. And I would love, I wish it wasn't so long ago because so many of those people are long passed away, mm-hmm. but to hear what it would have been like for no. from somebody who was there that day watching for that person. Man. And my morbid ass would also love to be one of the people that would have to be looking Ooh. for... I'm telling you, like, it takes me back to watching Criminal Minds and any time that they would be, like, scanning the crowd at a funeral or, like, at an mm-hmm. interview, they'd be like... Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, morbid curiosity. Yes. And you wonder if they had people signing the guest book because, you know, that's a mm-hmm. thing that those creeps like to do is make a big deal about. expressing condolences for the fan like inserting themselves into the grieving of the family yeah crazy 800 seats overflow Mm -hmm. yeah and that whole high school had to be there yes and i even read that the principal of muscuta high school Mm -hmm. tried initially to say that because it, I believe the funeral was on a Monday mm-hmm. or it, it was on a weekday. And he said that classes were going to continue on as normal and that any student who did not come would be given a zero on like anything they had going on for the day. And okay. he put that statement out um, to in like the fucking newsletter or and whatever. Got a middle and finger. a female teacher, because let the women do the work, the work marched up into his office and was like what the fuck are you doing like shut up let people go to this goddamn funeral i'm sure she didn't use as many expletives but he was like yes ma'am and they (laughs) did yeah (laughs) bow yeah she was like these children need to be able to grieve and even the teachers though. yeah exactly like you will not take that away from them and like try to shame them out of coming and sitting in a fucking desk and reading about so it's the end whatever. of school if it's yeah. may like, yeah what, exactly what, what are they learning exactly Nothing. like oh my god i took part in the illinois school uh curriculum we learned nothing guys yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we've learned nothing i know the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell mm-hmm. hey but you are a fully functioning d- adult that contributes to society i can wipe my ass and by has myself. have procreated and pay nope. your bills and all of that stuff <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> okay guys about enough about jen and i yeah you know? <laughs> yeah News station TV crews swarmed everywhere, and the street was lined with even more hundreds of people from surrounding towns and all the way from St. Louis. Their funeral procession carried 
for a full two and a half miles. And Mike's mother would later share with a close friend that as she watched the caskets being lowered into the ground side by side, it took every ounce of strength she had to keep herself from jumping onto the open grave and pulling her son out of the casket. Yeah. After the funeral, there was simply nothing left for the Morrison and Means families to do but wait. At this point, they had absolutely no idea about the intensity of the investigation churning behind the scenes. They were not aware of the anonymous phone call, and they had no idea of the harrowing story given to police by the teenage victim Bob Shea, or the handwritten letter addressed to the murdered girl's mother, and filled with Mike's ID cards. All of these things were clearly key pieces in a fucked-up jigsaw puzzle, but Dave Young and Charlie Gruel were still needing more to complete the picture. So far, the closest they had come to identifying a suspect had been when they questioned Mike's friend Bruce Younger, the one who had recognized Mike's car when it drove past his girlfriend Barb's house on prom night, and without any basis whatsoever, they actually interrogated Bruce on the day of Mike's funeral for three hours and pressed him incredibly hard to confess. Bruce vehemently denied having anything to do with Mike and Debbie's deaths, and the moment he was released, he actually drove straight to the Morrison's house and found Sergeant Morrison standing in the driveway, taking things out of the family car. This would have been, like, right after the funeral, like, the same day of the funeral. Like, ugh. I can't imagine. Close to crying, Bruce frantically explained everything that happened with the police questioning and insisted to Mike's dad that he had absolutely nothing to do with the murders. In a moment of kindness, surprise, surprise, if you haven't listened to part one, You shouldn't even be listening, so I'm not even going to say anything. (laughs) Mr. Morrison reassured Bruce that he believed him and that the police were just doing their job. And now it's interesting to note that previously, Bruce's dad had actually attempted to get the police chief fired. And to this day, Bruce believes that his intense interrogation was for no other reason than a personal vendetta that the chief had against his dad. So, yeah. There's some of that toxic small-town drama we know and love after we've been singing its praises. Honestly, <laughs> Look at how people came together, which they did, but... You don't have the small town with the love and the, you know, coming together without the gossip and the drama. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Again, it's just men and their pissing contests. Yep. And poor Bruce. (laughs) Poor poor fucking Bruce. He just wanted to make out with Barb. And then go home. God. Fortunately, poor Bruce would not be on law enforcement's radar for long. Because a small town hero named Perry (laughs) motherfucking Wilson. (laughs) We add the motherfucking... (laughs) Perry Wilson. Perry motherfucking Wilson. Mm-hmm. Was about to bring a whole damn murder investigation. Christmas to our investigators, Dave and Charlie. Mm-hmm. 
On May 12, 1969, one week after the discovery of Mike and Debbie's bodies, the owner of Scott Mobile Home Sales, Perry Wilson, <laughs> had a gnawing feeling in his gut that he couldn't shake after his odd heating and air conditioning repairman, Bill Nickerson, called the office and said he'd gone for a few days because his sister had died in Wichita, Wichita, Kansas. Wichita. Wichita. Don't want anybody to come Kansas. Guys, this is like episode 23, I think. You guys just need to get on board that I can't pronounce words. (laughs) That's okay. It was now Monday, and they'd had no word from Bill. And furthermore, he'd always known Bill to say he didn't have a phone, so it didn't make much sense to Perry that he'd heard the news of his sister's accident the same day it occurred. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would man, be like... Man, this man is just fucking, He's on he it. He is putting A and B and uh-huh, two and uh-huh. three together. Yep. So Perry went and checked with the local Western Telegraph office to see if Bill had gotten an emergency notice from Springfield, Missouri, where he claimed to be headed. He had not. Also, so, what the actual fuck is... Yeah, so here's what's weird is that he... The, like... There's inconsistencies which where he was going because like he said his sister died in Wichita, but that he was going to Missouri. Yeah, he was in and Rolla, that he was Missouri, in Rolla, headed to, headed to Yeah, so it's I don't know, it's just weird. But Okay. Yeah, so then he did another smart thing which he was like maybe he got a telegram, which is a very old school thing Excuse that me, doesn't nineteen sixty nine. Yeah. But I, I mean, I guess that was still a thing. Again, I'm time stupid. I didn't even think. I was barely Sergeant hanging Morrison on. Could have re- received a phone call across seas. <laughs> but yes. Uh, no, he did not get a telegram. So uh, he mm. was like, mm. "That I'm so." How many of these stories are we ever going to read? And the man put the puzzle pieces together that mm-hmm. fucking fast. Mm-hmm. There has to be more that like yeah, and he's he just a regular like, civilian, and it takes right. a, meanwhile it takes law enforcement like fifty fucking years to do something. I swear. Yeah. Perry then checked Bill's employment application and contacted the mobile home sales business he had listed on the application as his former employer in Wichita, Kansas to see if they knew anything about old Billy Boy Nickerson. They sure did. Not only was Bill actually named Marshall Stouffer, he was wanted for a kidnapping he had committed five weeks earlier, where he'd driven 170 miles from where he was living and working in Wichita, had cornered a young teenage couple in New London, Missouri at gunpoint, forced the boy into the trunk, and raped the 13-year-old girl, then took the boy out, forced them both to strip, and took sexually explicit photographs of the two of them before threatening to come back and kill them if they ever told. But unbeknownst to the adipshit Marshall Stouffer, the boy he'd locked in the trunk had pocketed a business card he found to the mobile home sales business in Wichita that was lying on the trunk floor. Marshall Stouffer never returned to Wichita, 
and a few days later, on April 14, 1969, he arrived in Belleville, Illinois, a mere 20 minutes from where Mike and Debbie's homes were, walked into Scott Mobile Home Sales, and was hired on the spot by Perry Wilson. The pieces are coming together. <laughs> now, it's important that we reiterate here that all three of these attacks have happened over the span of less than two months. Oh my god. So the, And by three attacks, we're talking about Mike and Debbie, mm-hmm. the couple in Breeze. Mis- Breeze. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yes. and the couple in Missouri. Yeah, no, you were totally right. Two months. Mm-hmm. And within a very close area. Oh, yeah. Like, he really didn't get that far. No. And it was only a few days after Marshall Stouffer, a.k.a. Bill, had been working at Scott Mobile Home Sales that Perry became a little sus of his new employee from Wichita and began piecing together more information that only increased his suspicions. Perry's son, Kevin, said that he had heard Bill asking Perry's office manager, a lady named Joyce Francis, if she... Oh my gosh. Would ever let Bill take photos of her with her blouse off. What the actual fuck? Uh. (sighs) And that Bill always carried around a Polaroid camera that he often took pictures with. Ew. Another of Perry's sons, Bob, who was 18 at the time, said that he thought he had been good-naturedly arguing with Bill about who was going to clean up some dog shit that was on the grass close to the sales office. And when he'd said to Bill, quote, you're the one who cleans up crap around here, unquote, the 39-year-old Bill became visibly enraged, grabbed a concrete cinder block, and tried to chase Bob down with the block raised over his head. Oh my god. Which, if you have, like, a little nepotism teenager telling you that shit as a grown man. It's annoying, but uh, that's that's extreme. Yeah. As an 18-year-old Bob had run off laughing, but looking back on the interaction, suddenly majorly creeped him out. Uh, yeah, Bill ain't just all cutesy yeah. with his little cinder block over uh, his head. And his Polaroid. <clears throat> Bill Yount. Now, this is a different Bill, a real Bill, was also employed at Scott Mobile Home Sales. And he felt bad for Bill Nickerson who seemed a little odd, but probably just lonely, and tried to befriend him. One evening, Bill Yount had fake dipshit Bill over to his home to have dinner with his wife and seven-year-old daughter. When a ways into the evening, fake Bill began paying close Uh attention to their seven-year-old daughter, Angie, and made comments about, quote, her beautiful eyes and long eyelashes. Many years later, Angie would recall that her mom had abruptly ended the evening and told Real Bill that fake dipshit Bill was never allowed to set foot in their house again. Yes, Angie's mom. Yes, ma'am. Perry had already thought fake Bill was uh, weird when his son told him about how he'd asked the office manager if he could take topless photos of her and more than weirded out he became alarmed when it was discovered that fake bill 
in the last few days, had used company funds to purchase rope and tape from the hardware store, but had signed for the purchases under the name of Real Bill Yount. Perry and Real Bill knew where fake dipshit Bill lived, who we're going to call Marshall Stouffer from now on, <laughs> since that's his easier. real name. Although Dipshit Bill had a nice ring to it. Yes, that was a fun tongue twister. And since Marshall was apparently out of town for his sister's funeral, they drove over to his rented trailer. After knocking and walking around the property for a bit, Perry broke into the trailer. Inside, they found an ashtray piled with very bloody camel cigarette butts a bloody towel hanging from the bathroom sink, a pair of very muddy boots in a corner, and a pad of paper where it looked like Marshall had been practicing real Bill Yount's signature. At the realization that they had just walked into the home of a possible rapist and murderer who had been in the same room as his daughter, Real Bill ran to the bathroom and threw up. Perry and Bill then ran to Bill's house and called police. The following is a list of evidence that the county sheriff's office submitted to the FBI crime lab. One pornography magazine, Canadian money, work shoes with ripple soles matching the shoe print found at the scene, hmm <laughs> In case you need reminding, the scene of Mike and Debbie's murder. Because they found that one boot print. Mm -hmm. A handbook on the maintenance of mobile homes. Letters for the handwriting samples. Various books, men's clothing, a 410 gauge shotgun. And these are the three things that make us be like, um, yeah. A set of fucking flood lamps for a movie camera, a piece of gauze with a piece of white hospital tape attached, and a cigarette butt with what appeared to be blood stains on the end. Also found at the Scott Mobile Home Sales warehouse was a new shovel. Police discovered that Marshall Stouffer had purchased this shovel the previous Monday at Thomas Hardware and charged it to the business without permission, forging Bill Yount's name. According to Kevin Wilson, Marshall Stouffer wasn't authorized to buy a shovel that we didn't need. And it's interesting to note that when the bodies of Mike and Debbie were found, the clothes that Debbie had borrowed from her friend Barb were missing from the crime scene. Because remember, Debbie mm -hmm. borrowed clothes from her to change into. So, um... Yeah. I mean, I don't know how that's not just signed, sealed, delivered, and yeah. done. Yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. By May 19th, 1969, law enforcement was closing in on Marshall Stouffer. They were confident that he had committed Mike and Debbie's murders based on the evidence they'd gleaned from the trailer thanks to Perry and Real Bill. The reports of Marshall's bloody lip and scratched face, the anonymous phone caller that admitted to the murders and said he had been bitten on the mouth, 
and, you know, right. his skipping town two days after the murders, plus the eerily similar attacks on young couples in Breeze and New London, Missouri. Over the next few days, Marshall Stouffer swapped out cars several times as he made his way to Sacramento, California, but was finally arrested on May 29th, Mascuda High School's graduation day. After an employee at Great Western Trailer Sales recognized Marshall Stouffer when he tried to... <laughs> Dear God. You know, at least he's hardworking. Yes. <laughs> he's not the brightest Fuck. french fry in the box. <laughs> tried to apply for a job at the same place he used to work before moving to Wichita under the name William Nickerson. And isn't Bill like a nickname yes. of William? <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> Fuck, gosh. He was arrested without resistance and at first gave his false name, then admitted later that his real name was Marshall Stouffer. Just to be clear, this is the first time that anyone has finally learned his real damn name. And he apparently used, like, 17 different variations of Bill Nickerson <laughs> over his life. He really did. It was probably, I mean, like, his childhood best friend and he just stuck uh, yeah, with it. Yeah, for real. Like, we're not going to bother listing them all, but he just... <laughs> had a bazillion different variations of his name and fine and that was actually what you know they arrested him and mm -hmm. were like a bill nickerson he was like yep yeah, that's, that's me. me and then was like actually it's marshall stouffer and they oh. were like oh yeah still oh. our guy yeah still our guy at the police station he lifted his shirt to reveal a nasty and large puncture wound that was over a week old but still needed medical attention just to the right of his sternum. I just know that stank. Oh, God. Stunk. Yeah. I don't even fucking know the word. Yeah. I'm disgusted right now thinking of it. In his possession, they found hundreds of photographs and undeveloped film. That is disgusting. Hundreds of photographs? I don't... Like, what the fuck do you need hundreds of photographs well, for of anything? Like His floodlights for movies? Oh. That I, I don't even want to know. That is I do, fucking but I horrifying. Like... You have no business. I'm like, I don't know. That's just, that's so fucking weird. I'm going to get come at I mean, for somebody that's into taking, as I have 500,000. Okay, <laughs> literally, you should see my children, <laughs> the amount of pictures I have. But like, uh, he left his house, all the things he left in his house. Yeah. And that's what he had. That he that's, split town and that's what he had with him. His was, trophies. Oh, God. Basically his trophies. Along with those, he had a .38 caliber revolver and a camera. Hmm. Unfortunately, we will just let you know right now because we were immediately wondering the same thing. None of these photos were of Mike and Debbie. <sighs> At the same time, across the country in Muscoota, Illinois, Ed Morrison stood and accepted. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun. I, I already cried when I wrote it because I was like, oh, man. but it's at the same on Aww. the same damn day. Like, and that's, that's also so kind of surreal. Wild. Yeah. But um, Ed Morrison stood and accepted his brother's Mike's award as class valedictorian. His father, Sergeant William Morrison, stood and gave the following brief speech. Quote, Mr. Williams, faculty, parents, students, and guests. On behalf of my family, I thank you for this diploma and tribute to Mike. Our grief has been bearable 
because of the goodness you and your friends have shown. To the class of 1969, on behalf of Mike, I wish each of you a bright future. It is far better to light the candle for the future than to curse the darkness of the past. Unquote. Mm. And I, that is really uh, beautiful. And I also do want to mention here because we are talking a lot about Mike mm-hmm. and, you know, how it affected his family and things like that. And that is, please do not misunderstand. That is in no way because we are trying to leave Debbie out of this. Um, and we have given you every shred of information that we knew about her, you know, who she was, how she and Mike met, and the effect that she had, the wonderful effect that she had um, on her family and friends. But we just don't have first-hand account details of what was happening with Debbie's family at this time because they simply closed themselves off which is also a completely valid mm-hmm. and they just understand differently yes and we only have the information that we have about you know like what we just told you and because of the book that ed's brother wrote and also debbie would not have been graduating that day so right. um you know it's I just wanted to make sure that we mentioned that, that we are not intentionally not talking as much about Debbie. It's just we don't have the degree of information that we do. Um, And I wish that we did, but I also respect her family's Mm -hmm. desire to just be like, world, fuck off. I mean, honestly. (laughs) Because that's what I would be doing. But if you listen to part one, you listen to our quick little snippet of how Debbie would have been one of us Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely would have been a great friend oh my gosh yes um yes but yeah her family just didn't go the route that ed morrison did yeah and again yeah that made you make Mm -hmm. a very good point because even Mm -hmm. though i knew she was not in his grade Mm -hmm. listening to his speech i was like oh why wasn't she mentioned but she just wasn't truly a part of that day yeah necessarily yeah just because it was that graduation Mm -hmm. day but I'm sure that she was still, I have no doubt on everyone's mind, just as heavily, you know, it was just that valedictorian honor that Mike would have received. I mean, both Uh, her and Mike have um, a memorial page in the yearbook and everything together, so. absolutely. And a scholarship that was founded in their mutual honor, which is, uh, I think Mike would have liked that. I think Debbie would have been like, ugh. (laughs) no and then eddie got it yeah Eddie was the first recipient yes oh my god all right well sorry we'll get back to talking about bill dipshit nickerson or whatever his name is while it was a relief to the families of mike and debbie to see the headline break that a suspect in the murders had finally been arrested It was crucial that the circumstantial evidence, which was pretty damn damning against Marshall Stouffer, be solidified even further with a confession. Police transcripts of his interview at St. Clair County Jail indicate that he confessed to writing the letter to the murdered girl's mother. 
and at first, all he would say when pressed regarding the events of the night of prom was that he couldn't remember. But bizarrely, the following morning, he was asked if he could write down what he recalled of that night, and suddenly he obliged. And this is what he said, quote, I remember having two people in my car the last Saturday night, May 3rd or 4th, 1969, in parentheses, in the Belleville area. It was a boy and a girl. I went home and I was sitting in front of my house and my clothes were all muddy and bloody. She was wearing a sweater and shorts. I was driving my 62 Chevy. It was red with black top. The car was in a ditch and the two people were standing alongside of it. The boy said there was something wrong with their muffler and they wanted me to take them someplace. I did own a 22 caliber revolver. I do not know where it is now. The boy had on a white shirt. Quote. The sheriff's office reported, Marshal Wayne Stouffer was removed from the Belleville City Jail and taken back to the scene by Chief Deputy Rodriguez, Sheriff Dahl, and Chief Investigator John T. Hansen, where the Morrison car was found. He stated that the boy's two front wheels were in the ditch, with the rear end sticking out on the road. Stouffer said he was heading toward Route 177 when he saw the couple. He stated that he stopped and asked them if they were hurt. He said the boy came up to the car and said they needed a ride because the muffler had fallen off and he had gotten a ticket earlier in the night because of this. Stouffer stated that the boy returned to the car and that the girl started to tickle the boy. Oh my fuck. Pause for shot of <laughs> The couple then got into his car, the girl in the middle front, and the boy in the passenger front. Stouffer stated that was the last thing he remembers until he found himself in front of his house full of blood and mud. He stated that he had a wound to the right chest. He pulled up his shirt and showed law enforcement the wound. They then took him to the scene of where the bodies were found, and Stouffer started crying and stated that he did not remember anything. He was then brought back to the Belleville City Jail. Oh boy. Okay. Mm, okay. No comment. Okay. Gosh, I just want to make... <laughs> Oh, maybe that's a business idea. We can make pinatas out of all these fuckers. Oh my god. Business idea. I would buy my own pinata. Not of me personally, <laughs> but like, if I made pinatas, I would buy them. <laughs> Although there are some days where I want to bash my own face well, yes, in. Yes, When you're like, did I really just fucking say that? Yeah. Ay, ay, ay. But yeah, that is one of the weirdest written things I've ever read like the part where he said i did own a 22 caliber revolver period i do not know where it is now period the boy had on a white shirt period 
it comes across as somebody whose thoughts are very scattered and very disjointed. I don't know. It's just I weird. Gosh. Yeah, we could do a deep dive yeah. just to his, in his... But we're going to read something else that he wrote in a minute. And that further shows he's lacking brain cells and yeah. a soul. Yeah. In further police interviews over the next several days, while being questioned about other rapes and possible murders he may have committed, he would flip back and forth between breaking down sobbing and saying that he didn't remember, which, as you can imagine, police weren't buying for a second. Mm-hmm. And neither are we. Nope. It's interesting to note, though, because he'd already admitted himself to writing the letter that no parent or just decent human being should ever have to read that he mailed to Debbie's mother two days after her death. We went back and forth over whether or not to include the actual letter in this episode because it's disgusting beyond belief. Uh, Yeah. However, the side of us that is deeply fascinated by the pathology of these killers and want to try and understand their patterns of behavior won out in the end. And we are going to read it for you guys. Be warned that it is incredibly graphic and disturbing. If you do not want to listen, take the time to skip ahead a minute. The letter began in a controlled, tight cursive script, but quickly deteriorated as the writer became more excited as he relived the assault in his own mind. Oh my, gross. Gross, gross, gross. And here we begin. Quote, Dear Mrs. Means, God only knows why I did what I did to your sweet daughter and that guy she was with. Shut the fuck up. I'm sorry, I'm just gonna tell him to sh- shut up. I'm thinking it. I just, God... I'm sorry, continue. There, T-H-E-R-E. Let mm. me just... Yes, we are going to point out his dipshittery throughout mm-hmm. this. He cannot spell or use proper grammar. Nope. Their car was in a ditch, and I wanted to help them. But when they got in my car, and I saw her pretty body, oh. I knew I had to have her. The boy wanted to help her remain a virgin, but I persuaded him differently. What? She smelled so very sweet and was so soft and tender. I assure you, I was gentle with her while I was inside of her. She struggled a bit, but when I finally got deep inside of her, I realized she was not a virgin. I guess when she bit a hole in my lip, I lost my mind and hurt her more than I meant to. I know I will caught, and I hope I am before this happens again. It has been a long time since it happens the first time, but your non-virgin daughter was the best. I honestly feel she was enjoying it while I was kissing her breasts and nipples. She was so soft and tender, and I guess I bit her too hard and she got mad. I must say again, I am sorry for the move on my frightened way. What? The move on my frightened way? Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, like the move that I made when I was frightened. Girl, I can't even begin to understand his brain. What? Please forgive me. Give the cards to his mother. Unquote. You are not forgiven. I hate him. I... Absolutely. As a mother. Just... As a person. I hate him. And there's... he has been inducted yeah. to my gas station in hell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
as my rolling Tokido. Mm-hmm. Yep. Full of E. coli. Yes, ma'am. Gosh. This type of letter mixed with how we just talked about the sobbing and the crying during the interrogation, I have a special level of hate in my heart for these types of criminals because it's the most like disgusting two-facery that you can possibly achieve Mm -mm. as a human being like i i feel messed up saying this but you have like a weird fucked up respect for people who are like i am a piece of shit i don't care who knows it i will i will basically plunder and pillage my way through humanity until you stop me and I know that I'm evil and I like being evil. And yes, you need to be locked up and have the key thrown away and you are no better than this type of person, but at least you can present yourself to the world as you are and not play these fucking twisted games of, oh, I'm so sorry. It's so disgusting. It's It's disgusting. It's frustrating. Yeah, and it just adds a level of mental trauma and to me like can it be a crime in and of its fucking self like there should be a way for that to be a crime in and of itself i, <laughs> I completely <laughs> I agree don't know. but but you have uh, no right to not only write this out to her mother mm-hmm. but do it like actually do it yeah. and then go and cry like a fucking Ew. baby yeah and that you he, have no remorse yeah. you knew what you were doing he you enjoyed continued. it yeah exactly yeah Just he the, enjoyed it he got like it got him excited it. oh my god yeah because he could like relive he could relive the attack and then the knowing that she was gonna get that and be re-traumatized at that knowledge it was like another type of assault for him to get to take sick pleasure in disgusting. so it's absolutely disgusting and this was not his first offense so no like, no I, definitely not you don't get to do something with full knowledge mm-hmm. and then say i'm sorry no and you, actions have consequences yeah i also do not believe that he act like i want to make sure i say this right because Eddie talks about how the one couple survived because they didn't fight back mm-hmm. and they did everything that he said and that he he doesn't outright say it, but there's like a, a tone of maybe like, well, maybe if they hadn't fought back, like that they and would have lived. And I think that's lived. a reasonable what if. Yes, like- that it's a what if. And there's nothing wrong with speculating mm-hmm. that. But I also believe that Marshall Stouffer it wouldn't have mattered maybe what they did because he was his entire life as we will go on to see is just a pattern of escalating Mm -hmm. and escalating Mm -hmm. violent crime and he actually was never convicted of it but it is believed that he raped and murdered another couple at another point in his life and so it wasn't that oh, he just raped people and then let them go. It was, this was always who he was. There's also no, he, 
oh, he just raped people. Exactly. He, exactly. Like, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And there's an absolutely nothing that any victim can do that no, makes no anything. No, there's no right reaction. Right. And I know there... I know that's a blanket statement, mm-hmm. and I, I know it's kind of shitty to also be like, yeah. but sometimes there is a right way. Sometimes, mm-hmm. you never know. You, you know never what's know how you're right going for to react. You, you don't yeah. know how that person's going to react. Mm-hmm. You do you. You yeah. try your best to fucking survive. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you shouldn't have to go through your life, d- like, debating and, like, thinking what you yeah. would do. Because no piece of shit like mm-hmm. Marshall Stouffer should come into your life and right. make you think that way. Exactly. Mm, you are it's... so right. That was a very good point. Yeah, you're absolutely Thank right. Thank you. There's the baguette I had. <laughs> the bread has given me knowledge. The gluten rush. Yes. <laughs> After he read this letter and factored in the accounts of the Breeze attack on Bob Shea and his date, and the events surrounding Mike and Debbie's murders, a doctor named Thomas Richardson, who is a psychiatrist at Scott Air Force Base, pieced together the following assessment of Marshall Stouffer. He said, quote, Stouffer has most likely been involved with law enforcement agencies through illegal encounters during most of his life, although I doubt they were of a very serious nature but consisted primarily of issuing bad checks, drunk driving, shoplifting, and the like. His sociopathic behavior may be unpredictable, and therefore dangerous. On one occasion, he may respond very mildly to arrest, confinement, or interrogation. On the other hand, he may not submit voluntarily and use whatever force is necessary to remain free. He may believe he is better and smarter than his fellow men. He cannot remain in one place very long. He will walk off his job without notification and may be considered a wanderer. He has no real goal in life. He considers himself a charmer of women. Superficially, he will get along with men to achieve an end. Then Dr. Richardson continued, The assailant of the double homicide indicates a psychotic trait personality because of the letter written to the girl's mother. This letter also demonstrates that he wants to be caught. That may also explain the anonymous phone call to police saying he was bit around the mouth. The Air Force psychiatrist concluded his report by saying, He didn't believe this individual would run because he committed rape or robbery, but murder may force him to leave. There is a possibility that he would return for a souvenir. Which could explain why he didn't have pictures of Mike and Debbie with him when he was caught. Oh, yeah. Because I I firmly believe Mm -hmm. that the photographs are, are his trophies. Yeah, yeah, I you're right because like what else because even like versus just quote-unquote just the rape versus the rape and the murder Mm -hmm. like i feel like yeah him and his dumbass polaroid yeah the hundreds of polaroids i'm gonna go home and destroy mine i guess (laughs) (laughs) oh god and now we need to give you a brief little synopsis of the life of uh, marshall fuckface stouffer 
Marshall Wayne Stouffer. Here we are with the Wayne. Yeah. John Wayne. Oh my God. I don't like the. You're so right. But that could have been like his grandfather and he could have been a good guy. Oh, he weren't. He weren't not a good guy. Okay. Let me continue. (laughs) Was one of seven children born in Dixon, Illinois on April 10th, 1930. So he did have Illinois education. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It makes sense. Yep. His parents, Wilbur and Mabel. Oh my God. Okay, but those are like the cutest little barn animal names. They are. (laughs) They're like little piggy names. (laughs) Ran a religious and educational camp for a while along the Rock River in Dixon, but spent years bouncing around from job to job trying to support their large family. Here we go. (laughs) Yep. Sorry. Here it comes. His grandfather was known to have violent and abusive outbursts and apparently once threw... Oh, goodness. Once threw a wrench at Marshall's face when he was a child. But not much is known about his childhood beyond that. There's that traumatic brain injury. (laughs) Ding, ding, ding. Oh, my God. When he was 16, his father died suddenly and he began a string of petty but slowly escalating crimes over the next several years, beginning with stealing and graduating to car theft, assault and lewd acts, and, quote, obtaining money under false pretenses. <laughs> huh. He completed airman training in San Antonio, but was kicked out of the military for going AWOL in 1952. Basically, he just led a life of impulsive law-breaking and short day jail sentences until he landed work in mobile home heating and cooling (laughs) under the alias of bill nickerson in sacramento the very same business he would later be arrested at Mm. gotta love full circle endings Mm -hmm. if only it would have never began yep once he was arrested for the rape and kidnapping incident in breeze in april and the murders of Mike and Debbie after the prom, it would come out publicly that Stouffer was also wanted for a similar rape case in Hannibal, Missouri. We did go over that one. That was the one with the 13-year-old. That was the the younger one. Yes. Mm -hmm. And a kidnapping in Wichita, Kansas. And I don't want to spend a lot of time we could literally spend a whole nother episode going into the details of all of his crimes, and mm-hmm. maybe we will one day because I think those stories deserve to be told as well. But I'll just leave it at that this kidnapping in Wichita, Kansas, was basically he convinced a 15-year-old girl to split town with him, and for several days they drove around and he alternately uh sexually assaulted her because a 15 year old cannot give consent and took those sexually explicit photographs of her so that was what he was first on the run for after he split from wichita and then in september of 1969 he was questioned in the murder of newlyweds Robert and Bobby Swanson in Missouri. And this is 
Also, again, we're not going to go deep into this story, but this is the most important detail I want to point out that I believe, and Ed Morrison does, many people Mm do, that they are convinced that he committed this murder of Robert and Bobby Swanson. So Robert and Bobby Swanson were Canadian and they had Canadian money in their possession. And if you recall, in the list of evidence that was found in his apartment, I'm sorry, not his apartment, in his trailer, Mm -hmm. Canadian money was found. And there is no record ever of Marshall Stouffer having any reason to go to Canada or ever being in Canada. So Mm. is that not a odd coinky that is mm-hmm. the red um yarn in yep. my brain map mm-hmm. is just connecting it's just going yep yep and at first even though he was charged with the clinton county rape and armed robbery case he was pleading not guilty but suddenly in the fall of 1969 He changed his plea to guilty and was sentenced to 50 to 52 years. That's a weird, (laughs) like 50 to 52 (laughs) years for the rape and 30 to 50 years for the armed robbery with the sentences to run concurrently. And it's important to note here that the thing that really sealed the deal here for this conviction was that both sets of victims mm-hmm. in Hannibal, Missouri and Breeze, Illinois were able to confidently identify Marshall Stouffer as the assailant. So the plan was that Marshall Stouffer would be tried and convicted for these attacks. Mm-hmm. Then he would be transferred to the St. Clair County District after being convicted in the Clinton County District Mm -hmm. for Mike and Debbie's murders. And I hope that that made sense. I'm sorry it gets a little bit convoluted because things sound the same. But basically, he was going to be tried and convicted in one county for two sets of rapes and armed attacks, then transferred to St. Clair County where he would be tried for the murder Uh, charged with the murder of Mike and Debbie and tried and I mean they were going to go for broke they were going Mm -hmm. for the death penalty yep but suddenly with Stouffer off of the streets put away for air quotes 50 to 52 years for the (laughs) rape of the breeze couple I'm sorry I don't know why that's so darkly funny Yes. And 30 to 50 years for the armed robbery with the sentences to run concurrently. So you're looking at you're never getting out of prison. Since the St. Clair County District Attorney was like, well, he's off the streets and he's 39 years old. He'll be away for at least 50 years. You know what? We're no longer going to charge Marshall Stouffer with the murders of Mike and Debbie. They also claimed that 
the reason for this behind closed doors was that they had come to a deal with Stouffer that he would plead guilty. Basically, they said, we will not try you additionally for the charges of murdering Mike and Debbie if you admit to these other rape and assault. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. combination of his confession plus the identification of him by the other two couples was enough to get him convicted beyond a reasonable doubt in court. But for whatever fucking reason, the St. Clair County District Attorney decided that they were going to take the murder charges of Mike and Debbie off the table if he pled guilty to those other crimes. Yeah. Because I don't know why we're making deals with a dumbass. Yeah. And I don't know why we're taking the Mm -hmm. Yeah. The the, what's the word? Um justice for Mike and Debbie from the family. Like why are we he's been positively identified. Yeah. He deserves to rot. Mm-hmm. He doesn't yeah. deserve to live mm-hmm. a life with yep. that Mike and Debbie didn't end mm-hmm. the lives that he altered from the, the couples who he assaulted. Yeah. I, I did, did, did. Yep. Make and, it make sense, please. Yes. And after this, this announcement was made via just a statement in the paper and understandably the community <laughs> of... That is fucked. Yes. Um, the community of Muscuta was furious with this decision and they actually held a town meeting demanding Mm. answers from Robert Rice, who was the one that made that statement that Marshall Stouffer was not going to be prosecuted. And in this meeting, he told the residents of Muscuta that, quote, the dismissal of the charges were part of a deal with Mm-mm. Stouffer, Mm-mm. which included a guilty plea on the Clinton County charges. And additionally, Robert Rice claimed that the murder case lacked hard evidence and was solely based on circumstantial evidence that could had not gotten a conviction in court. However, a grand jury hearing had been held for the murders of Mike and Debbie, and they found sufficient evidence to indict him on those charges. So that was just a decision that Robert Rice made that overrode that grand jury indictment. He made that deal. He said, we're just going to wrap this up, throw a little bow on it, and I don't ever have to deal with these small town people. Like, he just wanted it to be done, but... Well, then the dumbass should have gotten a better job that didn't require... Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I'm pissy. Yeah. I'm... Yeah. That annoys me mm-hmm. so much. Yes. That enrages me, not mm-hmm. annoys me. Gosh. Yep. And to combat this bullshittery, we are going to take you through a list of the evidence... That has since been compiled in the years following by Ed Morrison after all of the research that he put into this case. He is confident, and many people are too, that if this evidence, which they had access to Mm -hmm. at the time, had been presented in court, 
that Marshall Stouffer would have been convicted beyond a reasonable doubt. Unauthorized purchase of rope and tape from Thomas Hardware by forging Bill Yaunt's signature. Mm-hmm. The Monday after the murders, May 5th, 1969, Helen Wombacher and Bill Yaunt asked Stouffer about all the scratches on his face and injured swollen lip. Bill noticed Stouffer's scabbed and scraped knuckles. Oh, man. And that's so telling, too, is that it wasn't just like he said, she said, multiple people saw Mm -hmm. him. So they have so many people that they could put on the witness stand. And with his changing stories. Mm, Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. Like the catching him in lies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tuesday evening, Stouffer skipped town and called work the next morning claiming his sister died in a car wreck in Springfield, Missouri. There was no way for him to receive this information. One of his family members confirmed this did not occur, and Stouffer's sisters lived for decades after the crime. Oh Good my for them. Gosh. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Uncomfortable laughter. Honestly. The following Monday, May 12th, bloody cigarette butts were found piled in an ashtray along with a bloody towel in the bathroom of his trailer. Work shoes were discovered in his trailer with rippled soles, matching the shoe print at the scene. On June 9th, in the St. Clair County Jail, Stouffer wrote, quote, I remember having two people in the car, a boy and a girl. She was wearing a sweater and shorts. I went home. My clothes were all muddy and bloody. The car was in a ditch. Something wrong with their muffler. I did own a twenty-two caliber revolver. The boy had on a white shirt. Unquote. The public was unaware of our muffler problem. Oh, that's what Ed said. The mm, public was right? uh, the public was unaware of their muffler problem. And that white shirt that Mike was wearing, that was the thing that they were able to see him from from the plane. Mm -hmm. Yep. And interrogation, June 9th, 1969. Rodriguez says, do you remember writing a letter to the girl's mother? Stouffer responds, yes. Mm -hmm. Stouffer disguised his handwriting in the letter to Debbie's mother, but he couldn't mask the truth with his admission to Deputy Sheriff Kobe Rodriguez. He literally admitted to it. Yeah. Yeah. I it, it really, I think, was just bureaucratic BS and honestly laziness on the part of the district attorney for it Ugh. Yeah. I don't know. That was That was a very, very shitty move and a slap in the face, not only to the families. I mean, of course, most a slap in the face to the families. Mm -hmm. But I just think about like the discouragement for like Dave Young and Charlie Gruel to go to so much work and to piece this together and then to be told like, well, the charges are getting dropped, but he'll still be in prison for something else. But it's just like, it's the fucking principle. Like, he should have to sit through a trial and have to face everything that he did. And the even if he doesn't give a shit, which he clearly doesn't, it's just part of the system that we have in place that allows 
people to experience like that process of justice That's and the part of the grieving of the process yes and the, the and i almost oh. feel like i mean i'm just thinking the victims of the rape and the assault mm-hmm. that would almost be insulting for them mm-hmm. as well not to have justice for mm-hmm. his escalation on another yeah. couple it's like that could have been them yeah and if it was like they would have would they have been like brought justice yeah like yeah oh my god there's times where i mean i know we don't live in a perfect world Mm -hmm. (laughs) but man when everything gets fucked up where it's supposed to go right that's Mm -hmm. it just yeah sucks you know it it really is like marshall stouffer got away with it because he never actually had to face it you know like when you look at it from that point I will say he air quotes got away with it at the time, Mm -hmm. but I firmly believe that this work that his brother did into writing this book, Mm -hmm. into compiling this evidence, into putting that out into the world, that is an even more powerful conviction because 100% he did something that got put into the hands of anybody that wants it so it's like here's the fucking truth of this Mm -hmm. piece of shit here's exactly what happened here is how i'm honoring the life of mike and debbie and Mm -hmm. bringing them justice and i think that yeah i he didn't let this he didn't get away with it yeah just lie and no no, yeah his he's in it his dumbassery is Mm -hmm. in the book Mm -hmm. and oh yep yep and just to show you how stupid life in general is in this book that Ed wrote he writes about how he never ever told his parents that this happened but in just it was maybe a year or two after Mike's death, he was driving that same vehicle with a friend of his in the car. And he and his date had gone to get like a milkshake and hot dogs and they were driving on the country roads. Mm -hmm. And like, this is surreal, but I swear to God, like get the book and read it. This actually happened. He and his date were followed and uh, two young men got out of their vehicle and attempted to stop him in the Plymouth, that same 63 Plymouth Belvedere. So basically they tried to run him off the road and then they like got in front of him and were like blatantly trying to stop him. And he was like, no. I am not getting out of this car. Mm -hmm. So he stopped the Plymouth Belvedere, threw it in reverse, backed up like a hundred feet. And at this point, the two young men had gotten out of the car and were standing in the road, like walking towards his car. And he was like, I fucking floored the gas straight at them and like maxed out the gas Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and was like, I like, no, we're going. We are I'm, I'm I will take about them the out. Same roads that we were on last night. Yep, yep. You fucking bitch. <laughs> you fucking bitch. And he said, at the last second, those two 
men dove out of the way like and he missed hitting them by a hair's breadth and just left them but and that he just never told his parents because he didn't want them to be yeah they didn't need that on their plate but like can you imagine the like what the actual fuck like i i have chills just telling you that but yeah What is wrong with where we live? <laughs> I mean, I have a few things. I mean, I know we started yeah. this whole, like, part one saying Mascouche is a nice uh-huh. little place. I mean, it just goes to show you that, like, there is literally that okay. that idea of nothing bad ever happens here. No. That is not true. We could be... There's not one place mm-hmm. that I could put my finger mm-hmm. on the map where, like... Oh, nothing bad has ever happened yeah. there. Shitty people exist. Mm-hmm. And shitty people are going to find innocent people. Mm-hmm. Dude, yep. Gosh. Yep. No. Oh, if, hell yeah. no. If some That's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, bless Eddie. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah. I mean, Eddie is a fucking rock star. Yeah. And as we're bringing it all finally back around, uh, You'll be happy to know that it ends with uh, Marshall Stouffer finally dying, but not before um, he went on to fucking terrorize a honestly unknown number of people because to the horror of the Breeze and Mascuta communities, Marshall Stouffer was released from prison in 1990 on good behavior after serving 21 years of, I'm sorry, the sentence that was supposed to be 50 to 52 years with an additional 30 to 40 years added on top of it. So. Well, I'm sure there was some kid. God. Who's sitting on life sentence mm-hmm. for having weed on him. Mm-hmm. Eh, okay. Yep. And in the two years that followed, there would be other air quotes, lover's lane types of murders that he has never been convicted for. But if you want to connect the dots, they're definitely there if you want to do a deep dive. And it would not shock me at all Mm -mm. that he, if he was involved. And what we do know is that within two years after his release, he was once again arrested for three violent rapes that occurred in Idaho Nevada and Oregon. And finally, this time, he was convinced convinced <laughs> that he's a piece of he shit. Was convinced. So are we. <laughs> he was convicted and sentenced to life in prison. Finally, in 2002, he died at age 71 of congestive heart failure. Good fucking riddance. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I it is making me a little bit eye twitchy that I just had to summarize all of that shit in one <laughs> paragraph. Because <laughs> Caitlin is looking at me like we're running over of time, Jen. Oh. But y'all, <laughs> I seriously go and buy this fucking book because if you will hear so much more about the heinous crimes that this piece of shit committed, and it is appalling. And I don't know how he is not up there with the... I mean, he is one of the fucking Ted Bundys, the Dahmers, the Gacy... Like, he is one of those 
like it's just amazing yeah it's i don't know i don't even know and somehow he just kind of fell through the cracks and wasn't peewee gaskins that's very true yeah there's so many shitty yeah yeah it's just i don't know um in the years following mike and debbie's death his brother ed morrison established a fund called the means morrison scholarship given to a deserving young man and woman graduating from Mascuta Community High School every year. Eddie was the first male to receive the scholarship in 1970. He hopes that other recipients will read his account in the book and understand who Mike and Debbie were, that they were terrific people who loved and were loved by their family and friends. If you would like to contribute to the scholarship and help keep their memory alive, you can mail checks to Mascuta Community High School, courtesy of Scholarship Coordinator, at 1313 West Main Street in Mascuta, Illinois, 62258. And please make any checks payable to the Means Morrison Memorial Scholarship Fund, Incorporated. Finally, we would like to conclude this story by leaving you guys with a quote from Ed Morrison, Mike Morrison's younger brother. When I walk away from Mike's and Debbie's final resting place, I'm no longer stuck in the moment, questioning if there is a God and how a loving creator could allow this to happen. At long last, I am doing something for you, Mike, telling your story, exposing your killer, and honoring you as my big brother. Marshall Wayne Stouffer died, never convicted of the murders of Mike and Debbie, but my friend, John Downey, said it best. Quote, this book is his conviction. End quote. Yes. Yes. That it is. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. <clears throat> that was a absolute doozy. That was the sound of me shutting my laptop at 2% battery. <laughs> Thanks, baby girl, you hung on. You did good. You did good. Oh, man. Uh, okay, guys. We're leaving ya. We're going to put Bad Moon Rising, a link mm-hmm. to um, Ed and Mindy Morrison's book, and also the scholarship yeah. fundraiser in our show mm-hmm. notes. Yeah, we hit that point where we've lost the ability to speak. (laughs) This is draining. Yes. Yeah, you're also going to be getting um, a video series that you didn't ask for. But you're going to love. Yes. And you're going to like and you're going to share. Yes, some footage that we got um, because we are stupid, probably, and we decided we were going to go out to the end of old funk road and meander around and poke around to get as close as we could to the location of uh some of the yeah, scenes the, the scenes um and it was very sobering mm-hmm. i think i and surreal because when you're standing in a place like that you feel I'm sure it's like self-imposed in a way because you're aware right. of what, but you do feel 
there's a heaviness and a solemnness that I personally felt. It was like a stillness, like to me. Mm. Like I just feel like yeah. Well, yeah. and then comparing the pictures from mm-hmm. the book that we have posted in our fo- first post, mm-hmm. and then comparing them is I don't know. Yeah, I really do believe that we were as close as we could physically possibly get to the site of where Mike and Debbie were abducted and where the Plymouth Belvedere was found, as well as the site of the actual crime scene. And yeah, so that was just uh, really for us a just another way of bringing and experiencing like that part of their story, which was just a very small part of the life that they lived like and was not defined by how it ended but Mm -hmm. just i don't know as a way to pay respects to them and um yeah honor them Mm -hmm. especially as a case so close and yeah and we got to visit where they are buried side Mm -hmm. by side at the muscuda cemetery and um that was also really beautiful and there was a beautiful fall arrangement that Mm -hmm. was very recently put on the headstone and somebody had set a one of those painted rocks that was painted like an ice cream cone on uh mike's headstone and that was really really (laughs) sweet so yeah and and then the beautiful um granite stone that i believe ed oh yeah had put on it that kind of plugs his book yeah (laughs) but it had a beautiful Mm -hmm. picture of mike and Mm -hmm. debbie on prom night yeah and i liked that that was there because as a plug for his book it's like here's an account of like not only honoring them Mm -hmm. but bringing justice and calling attention exactly the piece of shit um that committed those crimes so yeah um a pretty cool true crimey full circle journey for a couple of weirdos Mm -hmm. and sam oh yes yes thank you sam we uh could not have done that uh without your help and i definitely would have been very very freaked out otherwise oh fuck (laughs) no well especially now that you said that (laughs) on the same road eddie got chased (laughs) Uh -uh, uh uh-uh uh-uh yeah Okay, guys. Catch you back next time. Bye.